You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds, welcome back to another episode of What the History. This is Casey and Sarah coming at you today with a topic that I knew literally nothing about, which makes me super stoked for this episode because I only found out about her and I think I mentioned her to Sarah because I saw a TikTok on this woman and I was like oh shit she's a badass babe she's not white I'd like to learn more about her um so this week we are going to talk to you to uh about Sophia oh sorry I should probably do like her whole title yeah princess (laughs) princess Mia Thermopolis I'm just kidding (laughs) I just when you said princess I my mind goes of Genovia (laughs) I know. So I was just going to be like, uh, Amelia Mianette Thermopolis, whatever. (laughs) I can't say her fucking name. Mm -hmm. I know this week we're (laughs) of the fictional land of Genovia. Uh, No, we are watching. No, we're not watching anything. We're talking about (laughs) Princess Sophia Duleep Singh, who was an Indian princess who spent actually like her entire life growing up. Uh, pretty closely with Queen Victoria um, or under, I guess, Queen Victoria's mm-hmm. reign. And she is going to be a major activist in the women's suffrage movement in the UK. So I'm going to talk a little bit about her early life. Uh, Sarah will give us some info about the UK suffrage movement, which I have many a Mary Poppins reference ready to go for that segment. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it's going to be so good. And uh, yeah, so we'll get right into it. So Let's see how many times I can butcher her name. Oh, yeah. She's got a fucking name, too. Okay. (laughs) On August 8th, 1879, Sophia Jindan Alexandranova Duleep Singh was born to her mother, Bamba Mueller, and her father, the Maharaja Duleep Singh. So (laughs) I really picked a doozy of a... (laughs) of a name group for Uh for this week so a little bit about her family because her family has a pretty unique um story so her father was the maharaja dilip singh who was the last maharaja of the sikh empire which was located in northern india so i don't know if anybody is a a big um moulin rouge fan i don't know if you are a moulin rouge fan sarah i like moulin rouge Okay, I just keep thinking of uh, the character of the Maharaja. Do you remember how yeah. he has like the singing That's... sitar, right? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. Because that I is like... like my only reference for that word, basically. Me too. No, and I teach history, and I, we barely end up talking about it because our curriculum is so Eurocentric. <laughs> That's another story for another day. But the Maharaja <laughs> was <laughs> Julip Singh became the Maharaja at the age of five, and his mother pretty much ruled on his behalf. And then when he was fifteen, he was actually kidnapped by the British Crown, and then I guess like forced to convert to christianity or he like quote unquote actively chose to which like i don't know how much of that is like actively choosing to um and then he became exiled to england right like so he was like kind of kidnapped okay but then also exiled so i this should be i don't know i well i know it should be it would make it a lot its own movie just him being kidnapped yeah just him like his story yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Because I think, like, he he should have been technically, I mean, he should have continued his reign as um, a Sikh emperor, but because of British colonialism and, I mean, this is in, like, the 18, 
like 30s, 1840s. So the um, British East India Company is taking like major control over this territory at the time. So there's oh, wait. Dude, there is a fucking movie about him. Holy shit. How did I not realize this until right now? Oh. Um, okay. My on. bad. <laughs> it's, um, no, 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 no. It's fine. Cause you said it. And I was like, I feel like I've heard of the story before. It's, it's the, oh my God. Gleep. <laughs> Sing. I, I can't believe I didn't put it I know. I'm going to Google it. Queen Victoria movie. Okay. The Black Prince. The Black Prince? That's what it's called. Yes. I had so not heard it's, of this. It's on Netflix. <laughs> So y'all can go watch it. It's actually about the next segment that I was about to get into, which is basically how he and Queen Victoria become like BFFs. So he, yeah, so he gets sent to India. I'm sorry. He gets sent to England and he is never allowed to like return home. And as a kid, when he's like 15 or 16, Queen Victoria kind of like takes him under her wing. And like part of it is like super gross because it's just like a white lady being like, hey, like you're a person of color and like your culture is so unique and like I'm the empress of India kind of thing but then the other part of it is like actually really motherly which is like I don't know kind of sweet but just it's still kind of gross so anyway I digress uh so he like lives in London and he and Queen Victoria become friends and one historian describes their relationship saying quote he was that exotic prince and she uh, treated him like a favorite son and he would be invited to every royal gathering he even holidayed with Prince Albert and Queen Victoria he became oh this part's gross the ideal party piece that every lord and lady wanted at their event which is so fucking white but no no oh no, um, no, no. yeah like I'm glad so- they were nice to you but <laughs> I'm so glad that you're like the party, whatever, entertainment. That's what it feels like. Uh, Yeah. It's like, oh, Queen Victoria's parties are going to be lit. Yeah. (laughs) Because they've got. Right. That's what I mean. They'll be like, yo, they have an Indian prince there. Your party didn't have an Indian prince. Like, that's the level of white people shit that the royalty was (laughs) doing, which I should be. Yeah. Not shocked at. But her mother. This reminds me of the in in Ching. I think it was the Ching Shi episode where it's like, this is our son, the heir to our throne, who we love. Also, we kidnapped him a little bit, but he is our son. Yes, it's it's <laughs> totally that same vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like this awkward like introduction almost. They're like, okay, what the fuck? It's like you're pushing yeah. it too hard. <laughs> so um, Sophia's mother also is pretty interesting in her heritage. So, of course, like every place I read this described her mother as being this like exotic beauty or whatever but her father so this is bomba mueller so her father was a german banker named ludwig mueller and her mother was an enslaved abyssinian coptic christian woman whose name was sophia so there were some like weird a lot to unpack right there right right exactly so there were some like weird (laughs) stories around like ludwig and Sophia, the Abyssinian Coptic Christian enslaved woman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where it <laughs> can you say that five times fucking fast? I don't um, know if I can say it one time. I don't think I know what Coptic means. Coptic. No. Oh, the Copts, not the. <laughs> it's not the, the Copts. Cops? Not, it's not that. It's Copt. Copts. C O P T S. Okay. I was at COPD, which is also not funny. I'm so sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> We're off to a very strong start today. We have at least six Google searches oh, no. already happening. Oh, so the Copts are an ethno-religious group indigenous to North Africa. Okay. So they're, they primarily inhabit the area of what is modern-day Egypt. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. Okay. So that Bamba's makes sense mother. I saw that her mom was Egyptian. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Bamba's mother... Um, kind of grows up in this fairly wealthy social scene with her German father. Um, and she and Duleep actually meet in Cairo in 1863. And when Duleep's returning from actually scattering his mother's ashes in India, he meets Bamba and they seem to get along and there didn't seem to be any like grand love story. It was kind of just like they liked each other. And so the two ended up getting married in Alexandria, Egypt in June of 1864. So this is like bullet point four for me. So (laughs) Sophia actually (laughs) has like such a long name and her name is really indicative of all of her um, ancestry. So I wanted to kind of include that really quick. So she was named after her enslaved maternal grandmother, Sophia. Uh, Jindin was for her paternal grandmother, who is the Maharani Jind Kaur. Oh. And I'm like really like dying through these. Um, and Alexandrovna for her godmother, who was Queen Alexandrina Victoria. So she has quite a long list of names and her names all have very specific meanings which i think is actually pretty cool um so sophia was one of 10 children six of which survived uh her her children her brothers and sisters were uh frederick catherine hilda and bamba so i think that's really the only three that kind of i don't want to say matter but like you know significantly impact her life so when sophia was 10 years old uh her father attempted to return to india with their family which was against the wishes of the british government uh they basically got as far as i think it's aden aden before they were forced to return with arrest warrant and this is going to be kind of a consistent theme in her life with trying to return to india um there is this like sense of wanting to avoid the family going back to India because there's a fear that like with the return of their family of the Maharaja, like the people living in that territory will try to get them back and basically like overthrow the British government. Um, So that's like kind of the vibe that I got. But later on that year, when she was 10, Sophia developed typhoid fever. And that actually ends up killing her mother, who contracts the disease, falls into a coma, and then later dies in September of 1887, which is really, really sad. Yeah. Two years later. She wore a mask. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wear a fucking mask, people. No, it's relevant. It's real. (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's like typhoid, but I don't know. Right. I don't think that was actually her issue, but... Right, right. (laughs) And I don't think in 1887 they had a fraction of the fucking scientific understanding that we do. Right. I don't think they were like, oh, this is how it works, and if I just do this, it'll be fine. They were just like, yeah, guess guess that's happening. Yeah, Texas. Like, what the fuck? Anyway. Mm, Texas. So, (laughs) we angry with you, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I, my heart goes out to all the people who are in Texas who are like, what the fuck did you do? Yeah, not the people who live in Texas, just the governor. Right. Right. And the people who live in Texas that are like, yeah, well, yeah, deaf. I just like flip the bird for people who obviously Mm -hmm. can't see me because this is a podcast program. It's fine. Oh, she and her family. Just kidding. So two years later, (laughs) (laughs) uh, two years later, her father later remarried a woman named Ada Wetherill, which is like a cool fucking name. Who was actually a chambermaid, which I think is like pretty cute. Uh, yeah. But apparently, I guess this 
relationship was better uh, uh, than the one that he had had with Sophia's mother because that one was like kind of rocky uh, towards the end of her mother's life anyway. So she and her family lived in a place called Elvedon Hall in Suffolk, England, which was a combination of, quote, an Italianate exterior and palatial Mughal interior full of rich textiles and furnishings. Outside, this is why I included this quote, exotic animals and birds roamed the gardens, including golden pheasants, parrots, and peacocks, quote. So it's basically... Malfoy Manor. Yeah. You know, except probably cooler. Um, but yeah, so she kind of grew up in this like whole um, I don't want to use the word exotic because that's like a super white word, but like very like enchanted kind of mm-hmm. life. You know, like she had this like sort of palatial kind of like, you know, manner, and it was both Italian and Mughal, and it was just very like rich and colorful. And she was like really doted upon by the queen, uh, Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. who was very fond of Dilip Singh and his entire family. And she and her sisters basically became socialites because of Queen Victoria's just like love and money and like constant doting. She, quote, wore Parisian dresses, bred championship dogs, pursued photography and cycling and attended and hosted parties. She was super sporty. She loved playing hockey, which I thought was like cool as fuck. I don't know if it was like ice hockey or like field yeah. hockey, but let's just say it's ice hockey. Then she's like, I want to like picture this woman like gearing up, you know, with like fucking huge like shoulder pads and like a helmet and shit. She would go horseback riding. She would travel like wherever she could. She was extremely passionate about music. She kept a number of different instruments and sheet music pretty much whenever she wanted. And she actually, (laughs) I thought this was cool. She once spent over a quarter of her year's budget on a Steinway piano uh, because she just loved the way that it sounded beyond anything else, which is like, you know, I mean, she didn't have a shit ton of money. Uh, She did have a good amount because of what Queen Victoria was giving her and because her father did have this, this wealth. But um. We'll kind of get into that now, actually. So I just feel like her whole life was like one giant fucking Instagram influencer experience, I guess. Like, yes, you know what I mean? Victorian Instagram influencer. Totally. Like she was all about like fashion and like her older sisters were always like, Sophia, calm the fuck down. You're dressing way too decadent. And like she had her servants like dressed in burgundy uniforms and the men wore gold embroidered waistcoats. And it was like a fucking party all the time. I love her. I know. I mean, I she's her. extra as hell, but like, I love that. I think that's so great. Like, it's there's sort of this feeling yeah. of like, I don't know, like, she kind of knew that the English looked at her as like probably a token, but I feel like mm-hmm. she was cool with it and was like, I don't give a fuck. You want to give me money and like this awesome house to live in and like shit to yeah. do? Okay. She kind of just like allowed it to happen, which I'm. I'm okay with. Yeah, I'm not um, But things got worse for Sophia once her father passed away. So he actually died on October 22nd, which is my sister's birthday uh, in 1893, not the year my sister was born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely important to clarify. Hey, Sarah, what's up? Um, my sister's name is Sarah, but yeah. also that. Does she spell it right? Oh, <laughs> that is a, oh, shit. That's a loaded fucking question. <laughs> because to her she does but she most certainly does not spell it what you think is right here's my argument besides the biblical one i grew up only go by biblical arguments here exactly i'm very biblical but (laughs) i grew up in miami right so there was a lot of people named sarah so it spelled s-a-r-a 
But I would argue that's a very nice Hispanic name called Sara. Sara is a very nice name. It's just a different name than Sarah. (laughs) You know what I wonder? I think there was probably, I don't know where my parents came up with Sarah because as Casey, my whole backstory is my mom wanted to name me Katie. Everybody and their fucking mother literally was naming their daughters Katie in 1991. And my mom was like, well, let's do Casey. But let's make it feminine because once again, it's 1991. So they like took out the EY, put IE. My sister Danielle is named after my dad, whose name is Daniel. I don't know where the fuck Sarah comes from. I think they didn't put the H on because it might have been too biblical. Like, I feel like there's, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I feel like there is like, SIRA is almost like less elegant. Do you know what I mean? Or like traditional traditional so yeah Sarah's like yeah I fucking know yeah um, I know what I yeah so in her mind yes it's spelled correctly <laughs> uh her email is even something snarky like Sarah no h at and I'm like you're such a fucking tool like please oh like grow up she's 21 so she's allowed to Fair. be a little bit of a tool yeah I mean, um, mine came from like nowhere literally Sarah was not on the list no one was naming me Sarah and my mom had a c-section so she was on like a bunch of morphine and was over being asked what my name was so she told my dad to just name me and he named me sarah beth and she was like i don't know where that came from but sure fine we'll leave it that's so cute i thought you were gonna say something like she was like on a lot of drugs and she was like kara but like they heard sarah and so no she didn't even put that much effort in she was just like you do it but my dad was like enough of a good Jewish boy that Sarah had an H. <laughs> this always makes me think of like these types of baby naming conversations. I always think of Family Guy when they're like talking about Meg's name being Megatron, not yes. Megan. Yes. <laughs> Eric Eric and I have joked that if we have a kid, um, we're gonna name it something really fucking ridiculous, but give it like a really simple nickname that yeah. like, he'll never know what his actual name is. So I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, so Sophia's father yeah, uh, died on the day my sister Sarah was born right. in 1893. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Sophia was just 17 years old. So she and her siblings inherited just a fraction of her father's wealth. So about 23,000 pounds um, each, which was literally like a minuscule amount of what she should have gotten. Um okay. But in 1896... Where did the rest go? So, I think the British crown took it. Like, I think technically what should have happened was it should have gone to his children or, like, gone to his heirs as, like, the Maharajan. I don't know. Like, the continuation of the throne. Um, But... And that's actually... I mean, that's why she's technically a princess, right? But I think the British took it for themselves, which is kind of the vibe that I got. Um, So, his children were, like, taken care of right but you know not too taken care of with their fathers yeah you know actual wealth. they got like normal um, people amounts of money not right like if somebody wants to give me twenty three thousand pounds right now i'm not going to say no to that you know what right. i mean um <laughs> so you can support us now on patreon um yes. anyway in <laughs> in 1896 a few years later queen victoria uh grants sophia an apartment uh in hampton court and she gives her a 200 pound allowance per year to help maintain the apartment I don't know if that's like, I don't know what 200 pounds a year would get you back then. 
Uh, I imagine probably quite a bit, but probably not enough to be like super extravagant. Yeah. Um, and I also assume maintain the apartment does not mean like pay bills in this case. Well, that's what, right. So like, you know, everything's probably paid for and the servants are probably paid for and like whatever. But yeah. like, you know, that's like a $200 like champagne budget or some shit. I don't know. Right. That's to like buy new pillows. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Go to Home Goods, stock up on candles. Yeah. As you would. Um, so Sophia and her sister Bamba later make a secret trip to India in order to attend the 1903 Delhi Durbar, also called the Court of Delhi, which is basically an Indian imperial style assembly that's organized by the British to like mark the su- succession of an emperor empress of India. So this is like I bring this up because this is a pretty major turning point for her because she shows up and she's like this kind of like whitewashed Indian princess and nobody fucking knows who she is. Like right. She's like not well known at all. Even though in in London and in England she is like, oh my God, that's Princess Sophia Dulip saying like blah blah blah. But like she shows up to India and her, to like her homeland and like nobody knows who the fuck she is. And she realizes that it's totally pointless to be famous in the public eye and the media and not have any reason for that fame. So she basically returns to England a lot more determined to change the course of the rest of her life and actually make something of herself, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, the next big thing, and this is kind of where I'm going to like start to leave off for you, is the turning point when she returns to India in 1907 and she actually gets introduced to relatives in Amritsar and Lahore. And she's actually faced once again with the realities of what life in India is like, how there's a lot of extreme poverty in technical, technically like their territory that they were forced to surrender to the British. She's quoted as saying in one of her like journals, quote, I was delighted to see the house of my ancestors, but oh dear, how primitive it all is, quote. Um, and I don't think that was actually a reflection of like the lack of advancement in culture. I think it was a lot more focused on the fact that people were living in terrible conditions and she was like, holy shit, I didn't know it was this bad. Yeah. Um, The other big thing that changes her, too, is she can't speak Punjabi, um, so they need to include a translator. And so even though she's technically speaking to her people as like her what would be her subjects if she was still allowed to be the govern like governing body of that part, um, Mm. she was really admired by the people and the people were like excited to see her once they knew who she was. And while she was there, she met some Indian independence activists that really um, spoke out to her and she appreciated their dedication and the subsequent imprisonment by the different authorities for their independence actions. And that kind of turned Sophia even further against the British Raj in control of India. And I think it's going to kind of start to like cause her to also hate the British at home as well or demand more from the British government than she had previously. Right. So that is what I have for her, like, early life slash she's, like, in her 20s now. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay. And we're going to take a step back and talk about the general UK suffrage movement for um, for women's rights to vote. Because that's what suffrage is. I, I don't yeah. know. But, um, so. See, I can't I'm going to say this. Did you ever see that video of those people walking around trying to get, people like, women 
to reverse women's suffrage and the women are like yeah fuck suffrage like women should <laughs> no, not be but- suffering it's so <laughs> tragic. Like it's like oh no, it's like secondhand embarrassment, and it's so cringy yeah. as a woman to be like, "Don't you fucking know what you're saying? You're just making us all look bad." But I digress. Okay, I'm sorry. yeah, um, maybe those ones shouldn't vote. <laughs> we um, know who they voted okay. for. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in the UK, the movement for women to be able to vote started during the Victorian era, which is what we're talking about, so that makes sense. Um, At the time, voting laws specified men, so they all said men, but they didn't explicitly ban women. So some were actually able to vote in elections by using certain loopholes and things like that if they met the other qualifications, Um, because it was also still the time when you had to be like, you had to be like a landowner or make X amount of money or something like that to be considered eligible to vote. So okay. it was a weird, it was like, a, it was a legal, not illegal, right? It was never explicitly stated. It was just kind of assumed. A legal, like AL? Yeah, like a legal, like there was no legal standing on it. It didn't say women could. It didn't say women could. Oh, um, I had to fucking Google that one because you're good. <laughs> Versus illegal, like you're saying it said, clearly. I'm just stupid. Yeah, it was just nothing yeah, said. Women yeah. can't vote um, until 1832. So in 1832, women are explicitly banned from voting via the Reform Act, and then um, there's another act that comes in 1835 called the Munis- Municipal Corporations Act, and those two actually include language that explicitly say women can't vote. So that goes on for a while. So we get from, you know. The 32 to 35 region into like the 1860s. In the 1860s, okay. you, you start to see some cases pop up where unmarried taxpayers are given the right to vote. And in a few cases, that includes women. Um, so based on how okay. much they made, if a woman was unmarried and paid taxes, she could be allowed to vote. And there was a weird thing where they were actually given commensurate amounts of votes, almost. So, like, there was one woman who was single and she was a butcher. And she was, like, one of the richest women in the area. She got to vote four times. Mm -hmm. She got four votes based on, like, how much she paid in taxes. Oh, shit. So, like, her vote was worth four votes. Yeah. Like, they basically, okay. I don't, it's very sketchy, but it was basically like the richer you are, the more times you got to vote. Oh, that doesn't sound sketchy. That sounds about right. It's like, <laughs> like buying, I feel like that's like buying lottery t- or um, raffle tickets. Yes. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Like, if you have more money, you can put more tickets in the basket. And then yeah. Mm-hmm. That's um, fair. <laughs> so, In 1867, there's also a high-profile case where a woman named Lily Maxwell is single, and she's a shop owner. So she's like a business owner, pays her taxes, all that. She met all the qualifications that a man would have had to meet to be able to vote in terms of the property Mm -hmm. she owned and her income, blah, blah, blah. There was just a clerical error, and her name gets added to the election register because they're listing all the shop owners. Most of them aren't women. Her name gets put on there on accident, which makes her technically eligible to vote. She goes in. She says, hey, my name's on the list. They cross her off the list. She votes. Um, And so that becomes kind of 
well known, but later the court, the court of common pleas, um, they declared illegal that she couldn't have voted, that it wasn't supposed to happen. Her votes nullified all that. And that actually gets some publicity for this idea of women voting. It's kind of the first time well, a bunch right. of women are like, well, wait a second. She voted just fine before. Like, what are you talking about? Yes. Um, like, why can't she now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the time, there's a lot of kind of press for women's issues in general. I mean, relatively, right? But what you would think of then is a lot of press. And so outside pressure on women's suffrage is kind of overshadowed by this. So since the 1850s, this has been coming into conversation. Um, Women in the higher social circles are refusing to obey certain gender roles. And so there's all these other kind of early feminist movements at the time. And they include basic Mm -hmm. things like the right to sue your husband after a divorce. um, The right for a married woman to own property. Things like that. And so the suffrage movement, it's yeah. there, but it's its just a little bit diluted. But there's okay. a man named It's kind John- of not about, like, voting rights. It's, like, women's yeah. active role in society. Right. Okay. And I think at the time, the people who were kind of actively fighting these feminist movements don't see voting as import- as being as important as some of those other things. Right. Some of them are, like, we're okay. struggling to, like... Which I kind of get. Yeah. At, at- They don't see it as, like, this basic human rights issue, especially because at the time it's not, well, all men have the right to vote, right? You qualify to vote. Right. And so even if they said, okay, women can vote, without these laws, women aren't going to qualify to vote for the most part. If you have to be a property owner and Mm -hmm. married women can't own property, married women aren't going to be allowed to vote anyway. So... yeah. So it's just kind of diluted by these other things. It's not like the big issue of the time. But this man um, in 1865 is named John Stuart Mill. And he actually, he gets elected to some sort of office. I don't remember what. But um, he actually was in like direct support of female suffrage. And so he was a really high, high level, high profile politician who was a man who was like, no, I think women should vote. That sounds great. And the same year that he gets elected, the first Ladies Discussion Society is formed. So this is the Kensington Society. Okay. And it was sort of just a Ooh. general trend at this time. Women basically had clubs where all they did was went and, and talked and maybe played some games, talked about books, things like that. But it gave upper class women Yo, a chance that sounds to- lit. Right. It gave upper class women this chance to socialize and kind of commiserate. And I think in some cases, like collaborate on things. <laughs> and so the yeah. Kensington this Society. This is like giving me heavy. What's that uh, scene in Bridgerton where she's like married now and she can go like hang out with all the cool people and yes. like play poker and shit. It's yeah. like how the Duggars <laughs> are. She's like, wow, this have... is so much fucking better. Yeah. It's like how the Duggars can't have social media until <laughs> they're engaged. Oh my god, the Duggars. How do we always come back to the fucking Duggars? I That's don't my skill. It. But they're not allowed to have social media <laughs> until they're engaged. So this is like that. Um, it's like seven degrees of Duggars. <laughs> exactly. That's my skill. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, but so 
this Kensington Society, basically they spend a lot of time debating, should women be involved in public affairs at all? By which they mean politics, essentially, in this case. Not mm-hmm. necessarily voting, but just having a say in what goes on in the town, like city councils, things like that. They right. just they discuss like having a society specifically to talk about suffrage. And it gets overturned because people are afraid that extremists will take it over and it will become like this crazy militant thing. So they decide to keep it just as part of the larger society. But it, it doesn't really I work. What that would look like. Which part? The extremists? Just like a militant women's. Well, we will get society. to it. We will get to it. Oh, shit. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, I'm so excited. They decide not to do this. They kind of start splintering off into like groups on the DL, right? Some people that really wanted it and maybe were okay with the extremists start to form smaller groups and they start splitting over disagreements. It ends up really fractured as a movement. There's no central leader or central known place where it's like, oh, if you want to talk about suffrage, you go here. Because they start splintering over some people want to be really extreme, some people want to be really chill etc. And so at the same time, a bunch of other women's groups are starting to spring up like the Kensington Society. And they're talking about all sorts Mm -hmm. of issues. Some of them talk about suffrage. A lot of them talk about more local things, but it kind of sets the stage for women as competent political players. You start to just see that women have opinions on things, feel comfortable talking about them, and it's a little more known. It also, Mm -hmm. it cuts down on certain kinds of segregation, not really uh, the segregation we think of (laughs) when I say the word segregation, um, more class-related type things. I was going to say, I think it's more like money. Yeah, Yeah, it was more about class, and it still certainly was not like the working poor, but it wasn't as much like only the upper, upper crust. It it allowed for a little bit more right. mingling. So it wasn't some integrated utopia. It just brought together women who otherwise didn't have a social space where they ever would have been together. Um, and it gave women access to political figures. So it, they could use these groups to go to political events and things like that, where they wouldn't have ever had a way to talk to these people before. So in 1872, a few years later, women's suffrage becomes a really national movement. So the National Society for Women's Suffrage is formed. And then out of that comes the National Union of Women's Suffrages Societies, which is really the more influential kind of big organization. The NUWSS, which is not any easier to say than the full name. NUW knows. No. Knows. 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 Them. It's a unification of like multiple societies. So it's kind of the big tent, right? And in addition to these in England, Wales and Scotland and other parts of the UK are having similar kind of momentum. And they're kind of, you know, living their life. Um, And in 1906, so that's a good chunk of time later, right? This is like 30 years or so that they're trucking along. I was going to say, that's a 30-year gap. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it gains some momentum, but there's not really any movement. But by 1906, you start to see public sentiments shifting a little bit. And people being a little less, like, adverse, it's less of a fringe movement. It starts to become a national conversation even more. At that point, a campaign or a group called the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, springs out. And they're the militant group. 
So they're like this very militant campaign. Oh, they. Actually, I got to say, I like their name yeah. the best. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> they start out with basically big displays. So rather than like schmoozing with political figures and all that, they do things like parades and pro- what we would think of as like a protest okay. demonstration today. But they were really willing to quickly okay. turn to violence is sort of the reputation they get. They plan these displays. Yo, this is but- for fucking sure Mrs. Banks. Yes. This oh, is Mrs. Mrs. Banks would throw fucking down. Yeah. Yes. So anytime, <laughs> I'm so stoked. I have to rewatch Mary Poppins now. Yeah. Anytime there's even like a slight provocation, they're ready to fight and they're perfectly happy to use violent means if they have to. The WSPU. Sometimes violence of, is the answer. Exactly. <laughs> one of the women who runs this is named Emmeline Pankhurst and she kind of comes into Princess Sophia's story later. But Emmeline Pankhurst okay. was a huge suffragist at the time, and she had been married to a man, and they had two adult daughters, and her husband was very supportive of the, the suffragist movement, and it was something she cared about, and her daughters had been raised to care about. But when her husband died, her and her mm-hmm. daughters basically, like, throw themselves completely into it, right? They start joining all yeah. of these different groups, And they get mad that all of the main groups are really just talking about stuff and not doing anything. They're still kind of these discussion-based, hoping for change. And that's part of what led to the... Like, all talk, no action. Exactly. And that's what leads to them wanting to do the WSPU, is they want a group that actually takes action. In response Mm -hmm. to them and their kind of uh, reputation, an act is passed in the parliament called the Cat and Mouse Act... And basically, they what? Was, it was called the Cat and Mouse Act. And what was happening was they were arresting women who were part of these more violent or militant demonstrations for suffragists, um, for the suffragist uh-huh. movement. And they would go on hunger strike in prison and get sick, right? And die in prison right. to kind of become a martyr. And every time that happened, it okay. brought all this publicity and people got mad at them and that person was like lionized. And so this This cat- is going to be a stupid question. Yeah. Why do people do hunger strikes? Like what's is that is it to die so that way I feel like there's like a martyrdom with it? I think that might be part of it. I mean, some people might be trying to get something, right? I'm not eating until you do this. Right. But, like, um, if you're, like, if if people are, like, all right, I don't give a shit, like. Yeah, I I mean, personally can't relate. Like, I'm not going on a hunger strike anytime Okay, soon. so an act of, yeah, fuck that. I would not survive. <laughs> no. Uh, or to provoke the feelings of guilt in others, usually to achieve yeah. a specific goal. But I don't really understand. Why are hunger strikes effective? This is a QRA. <laughs> they must be <laughs> legit. Um, it must be. I don't, it doesn't say. Hold on. So everyone at some point knows on some level what starving feels like. Granted, some has, have never gone a day without food of some nature. It creates a sense of familiarity between groups that largely would have no other major connection as it is a human condition. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, I'm doing this to like in solidarity of like now I understand how we've all suffered somehow. Okay. Okay. I can fuck with that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so they had people doing that, and what would happen is they would force feed them, which is a common tactic with hunger strikes in prison, Mm -hmm. and the people would get sick. So even if they weren't starving to death, they were getting sick based off this, and it was just giving them a bunch of, like, kind of positive publicity, where people felt bad for them. 
So they passed this act in response to this group that's called the Cat and Mouse Act. And it basically says if you're sick from a hunger strike or force feeding, you're released from prison until such a time that you're healthy. And so then you get re-imprisoned. Oh. But it was basically like, look, if you want to do this, fine. Go home. We'll, we'll catch you later. <laughs> like, <laughs> we just don't have we don't have time for this shit. Yeah. Come was, back to prison when you've eaten a fucking meal. <laughs> exactly. And it was basically just because it was making them look good. So they wanted to make that tool ineffective. So this is kind yeah. of ramping everything up, right? They're getting this publicity. They have people over this more militant group that people are hearing about. And then what happens is the First right. World War. Basically, during the First World War, all these serious political disagreements that weren't about foreign relations are put on pause. No one has time to be like, well, I want to vote. Like, they're they're busy with the war. <laughs> well, sit the fuck down, Karen. We're doing sure. what's other shit right now. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I'm doing hot girl shit. But uh, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm making um, radium. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm sorry. That was terrible. Oh, that was no. a terrible joke. You guys can cancel me now. I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to mute myself. I loved it. It was good. Okay. So (laughs) the war happens. Everything kind of tampers down. And so people are worried that once the war is over, like they're going to have to start from scratch, right? Like people are going to forget about this. It's not going to be a big deal anymore. But actually, after the war, the government's making a bunch of changes, right? They're passing different acts and laws in response to everything that happened. And one of the things they pass is the Representation of the People Act of 1918. This doesn't technically grant women the right to vote in mass, but it opens it up. So it changes the laws for men. So any man over 21 can vote. So there's no longer the property requirements okay. and things like that. And any women who are 30 and over can vote if they meet the property requirements, like the qualifications. So I'm it's so close. Holy right, it's shit. Not I'm so close. I'm full. almost 30 and I have a mortgage. So <laughs> there yes. you go. Yeah, it's not fully there, but it's closer than they have been. It's the first time women have like encoded yeah. rights to vote at all. And okay. the goal of this act was to include all adult men, but they also included some women. So that mm-hmm. was nice of them. Um, and this basically adds like millions and millions of voters. It adds 5.6 million men and 8.4 million women. And partially wow. the reason this is done is the women, like in every war you hear about, they maintain the home front, right? The guys are gone mm-hmm. at war. Women keep everything going. And so they were like, shit, maybe they're competent after all. And it was also partially right. an olive branch, <laughs> right? All, all these wars are going on. They don't want to come off of a war and have militant women's groups come out and cause a bunch of shit. <laughs> like, y'all, we just did this shit for five fucking years in the worst war we've ever seen. So can we not? Can we not, please? That's fair. Right. I think that's a good point. Yeah. And in public, this is pretty much seen by the larger population as suffragists got what they wanted. It's over. We did it. Mm hmm. Even though, so it was women over 30, it was wives of men who met property qualifications, and it was graduates of university. So certainly not everyone. But for 10 years, this is the law. A lot of women can vote, a lot can't. And it's kind of seen as, well, we did it. Good enough. Um, But in 1928, (laughs) 
So 10 years later, they pass an extension of the Representation of the People Act called the Equal Franchise Act. Okay. And this changes it to everybody over 21 on equal terms. So as of 1928, all women, in theory, all women have the right to vote. I'm sure it's like America where when I say all women, I mean mostly white women, even though Mm -hmm. that's not written Mm -hmm. into the laws. Um, I'm sure that's part of it. Right. Yeah. Suffragist movement there and here are both pretty white. But that's kind of the the landscape of what's happening. And we'll get into with, with our friend Sophia, kind of the more militant groups versus the more quiet groups. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of where, like, I have stuff. So she, um, I kind of pick her back up in World War One. So she actually, I really liked understanding her role in connecting herself back to, like, her heritage because Mm -hmm. she actually does a lot to support the Indian soldiers who are working in British fleets and who are forced to fight on behalf of the British. And I think that's usually something that a lot of people tend to forget is, like, this is, in essence, in some cases, like the height of British colonialism, they have a fuck ton of territories that they have control over, including India, including like, you know, parts of Africa. And all of these folks are forced to fight on behalf of the British. And Sophia um, makes sure to go out of her way to continuously acknowledge the role that Indian soldiers played in fighting for the British. So she joined a 10,000 woman protest that was marching against the prohibition of a volunteer female force, which is like fucking badass. Like, I'm glad that she's our badass baby, because I think about like the fact that she literally is protesting, not being able to fight like, you know what I mean? And I feel like now that we kind of know she's I'm assuming she's probably going to be a little bit more militant um, just based on like her her passion for it. Mm which I really, I think is super cool. Uh, She also volunteers in the British Red Cross Voluntary Aid Detachment as a nurse, and she works in a military hospital in Islesworth from October of 1915 to January of 1917. And while she's there, she attends to Indian soldiers who were evacuated from the Western Front, and that actually had a huge impact on their morale, uh, especially the men who were helped by her or heard that she was like in the vicinity. And from what I understand, she did a good job of trying to advocate for them religiously as well. So like if they had specific traditions that their religion wanted them to uphold in times of sickness or death, she worked hard to make sure to advocate for that, which is fucking awesome. And actually some Sikh soldiers were astounded and honored that quote, the granddaughter of Ranjit Singh sat by their bedsides in a nurse's uniform quote. So like her just presence of being there, even though she was like, what would be their princess is she's like serving them. And that was like really profound for a lot of them. Like Like you said, I know. Okay. I just listened to an amazing podcast. Again, this is Oh, shit. Noble Blood. I've told you about Noble Blood, I think, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've listened to Noble Blood before. Okay, yeah. They just did... Uh, Dana Schwartz just did a, a like one and a half hour episode on Diana. So Ooh. it made me think, okay, yo, we got to get on that she, shit. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> Sarah just like fucking leaves. <laughs> like, you I just picked click. up my phone. That's all I did. Like, excuse me, bye. <laughs> You hear a click in the episode, I'm like, and we lost Sarah, so I'm just going to read her bullet points. Um, (laughs) 
So like you said, in 1918, the Representation of the People Act, which allowed women over the age of 30 to vote. After that point, Sophia joins the Suffragette Fellowship. And this is, again, she ends up arranging a flag day for Indian troops. And the following year, she hosts the Indian soldiers at her home. And eventually she receives a place of honor in the suffragette movement, uh, specifically for not just the advancement of women, but a lot of what her stuff was promoting was her um, like Indian culture and heritage. So that's kind of her like later life stuff. I know her activism stuff is uh, it's pretty insane, too. Yeah, her activism stuff is mostly just like, here's some shit she was up to yeah. um, in these time periods. So she returns from India, like, early in the 1900s, and she joins the WSPU. So that's the more militant group. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of recruited by a woman named Una Dugdale, who's a friend of the Pankhurst family. So Emily Pankhurst. Una Dugdale. Right? Sounds like a character from Archie. (laughs) Oh, Oh, fuck, it totally does. (laughs) How do you say that name with an English accent? I can't say anything. Yeah, I can't say anything. Terrible. That's awful. But they're friends (laughs) of the Pankhurst. She's friends with the Pankhurst family, Emmeline and her daughters. And so she kind of recruits Sophia in. And Sophia really quickly becomes a leading member of the movement. And she starts funding some of the Mm -hmm. suffragette groups. So she's helping to pay for things. She's leading like these demonstrations. And she actually starts refusing to pay her taxes. Which the government kind of gets their oh, eye on that. her. And there's a quote King George V once said about her in exasperation, have we no hold on her? And so I think they kind of <laughs> thought like she owed That's the awesome. government because of what Queen Victoria had done for her. And she's just like, no, well, I'm, I'm not laughing because I'm thinking of the money that she's using. Exactly. Yeah, like the money she's using is coming from Queen Victoria's like pockets fucking awesome i mean victoria is dead at this point but still it's pretty cool yeah and that's what there's sort of a note that you know most of what she's doing is around women's rights in england because that's really her home but they also promote similar activities in the colonies so she like valued her indian heritage she cared about what happened there but there wasn't one nation she really cared about above others It was England was where she was so she could make an impact there that extended to India and other colonized places. Um, And her title Mm -hmm. princess was kind of useful for that because it gave her like a diplomatic role. But she would do she got up to just like random shit like she sold a suffragette newspaper right outside of the palace where she used to live and they kept removing (laughs) her and she like just kept going back. At one point her and Pankhurst and a group of activists went to the House of Commons trying to meet with the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary ordered their expulsion. So they like kicked them out and a lot of the women were seriously injured and they actually had that known as Black Friday for a long time. She doesn't seem to have been injured. Yeah, different different Black Black Friday Friday vibes though. Exactly. But women still end up hurt. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god. She started out more keeping a low profile um, and not wanting to make speeches or anything like that. She didn't want to chair meetings. She just didn't think she was very good at that. She would tell her colleagues she Mm, was quite useless for that sort of thing and would only say, quote, five words if nobody else would support the forthcoming revolution. But she did over time start to to be more comfortable addressing meetings and things like that. And then I noted purely for the I'm going to think about Mrs. Banks. There's like stories of women meeting her and that 
saying she always wore a small badge that said votes for women, which was her like little motto. Fuck. Yes, she yes. did. Yes. Ugh, I just think of them parading around that fucking like entryway and I'm like, this looks yes. awesome. I think that's when I was officially born as a feminist. Like probably I was like, this that's looks what got cool me. as shit. I want this. Yeah, yeah. And I was like four or five. So oh, yeah. Started young. Yep. I also liked the color oh, of, of the her- banners. <laughs> yes, they were nice. <laughs> um, so she actually at one point authorizes while still alive, an auction of a lot of her belongings with all the proceeds set to benefit the Women's Tax Resistance League. So this was, again, women who didn't pay their taxes because they basically said, well, we aren't represented. No. And she solicited a bunch of subscriptions. This is when she sold the newspapers outside her home and later from carts. Like, that's what the money went towards. And then they, they never arrest her right she's never arrested people kind of think it's because they didn't want to make a martyr out of her because she already had a somewhat known name that they were worried it would become worse so the administration was keeping a really close eye on her but she's never arrested but they try and get her on like petty stuff all the time so like at one point she's fined three pounds for keeping a coach a helper and five dogs (laughs) like she doesn't have the right dog how many were you allowed to have i don't know but apparently not five and so they find her for that or they like repossess random items of hers because she didn't pay her taxes um she gets in trouble for using a roll i wonder if this is like related to her a roll of arms which i literally wrote this is apparently a coat of arms coat of arms and not guns because i assumed it meant guns roll Roll of arms. Roll of arms. Yeah. And I saw like a, that. Like a roll? Well, I'm American, right? So I picture like one of those things that goes over your chest with your AK-47 bullets is what I assumed a roll of arms oh, was. I didn't even. <laughs> but it's a kind of. I picture coat. like a, a piece of bread. Oh, see, it's like a coat of arms. Like rolls. Is what it is. It's like another. Oh, I just Googled of... it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but apparently she's a not collection allowed of to coats do that. of arms, usually consisting of rows of painted pictures. Yeah, apparently she's well, not allowed to do that. I wonder if they kind of let her off the hook because, like, I wonder if they let her off the hook because she was so closely affiliated with the royal family that they were kind of like, "This is going to look bad on us if people realize that we've been like supporting and promoting her for years, and now she's yeah. like Fuck the system." You know what I mean? Yeah, it's pot. There's like speculation on it, right? I think probably that yeah. they didn't want her to be some figure everyone like followed for that, but. So they basically just get her on small charges, small fines, like come and repossess her stuff, take her, you know, you can't be out here, that kind of thing. But she's never actually arrested (laughs) during any of this. And so she just starts doing petty shit and they start charging her for it. Um, By by 1930, you know, she's a pretty well-respected person in the movement. And by 1930, women have been granted the right to vote. So at the time, she's put on a committee that the job of the committee is to provide flower decorations for a Pankhurst memorial. So there's a big memorial in the Victoria Tower Gardens okay. to Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel. And she's in charge name. of doing that, kind of honoring them. She, in 1934, is interviewed for a magazine called Who's Who. And <laughs> she describes <laughs> her life purpose as the advancement of women and is no- oh. said to be known for espousing causes of equality and justice that 
they don't at the time see as being in line with her royal background right they see it as like Mm -hmm. in conflict with her royal background she helped people in need and so she has you know a nice legacy she's she's even been since then on one of the royal mail's they did a, a stamp set of votes for women with people like the Pankhurst, but she awesome. was on one of the stamps and it was a picture of her selling the magazine or the paper that she was selling and oh, wow. using the proceeds to like fight with. That's cool. Yeah. And there is a statue in Parliament Square that was unveiled a few years ago of a woman named Millicent Fawcett, who was a really big activist in this movement. But there are 58 names Mm -hmm. and pictures of other women on it, and she's one of them. So she does get kind of known for being a big part of this. And that's what I've got on her activism, which is a mix mix of, like, really cool big shit and, like, I have more dogs. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I like her, like, petty little things. Like, I think that's awesome. She gives me, like, mad vibes of, like, somebody who grew up in a lot of wealth and then, like, decided to be, like, fuck the system and, like... Is she you know, more like she's Gilmore. like the Discuss. she is, except less <laughs> privileged because something about Lorelai yes. Gilmore is so cripplingly privileged. Oh, like- for sure. <laughs> but just that, like, I grew up with everything. Isn't that terrible? Now I will do. Yes, <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna go be a maid and live in a cottage. So there. Yes. It's like a poor little rich girl vibe, but there was yes. also something about her that was, in fact, I don't want to say poor because that's not the word I'm looking for. But like she was in some ways, I think, disregarded because of the fact that she wasn't white European. Like, I think people yeah. kind of were like, oh, she's like, you know, an uh, Indian princess. Like, wow, like, that's cool. But there wasn't, I, I think, like a lot of that taken seriously. I feel like they just assumed any power she had came from Queen Victoria and like that association. Right. And that it was all by by proxy right and like technically she was royalty she just wasn't english royalty so but yeah so just to kind of finish up on august 22nd for 1498 jesus christ we just went back 500 years (laughs) (sighs) on august 22nd 1948 sophia died in her sleep in her sister Catherine's home. Uh, she was cremated four days later and she expressed her wishes to be cremated according to the Sikh rites with her ashes spread in India, which I don't know if they actually did. And I feel like they may have, but maybe they didn't do that with her father. There's There was something right. like kind of tricky where they were like, should we return this body to India? Uh, and I, re- yeah. I pinned the headline, but I never fucking read anything with it. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, despite all of the things that were repossessed from her, at the time of her death, her estimate uh, her estate amounted to 58,040 pounds, or in modern day terms, 2,126,032 pounds. So okay. she had some money. Uh, I don't know where the fuck she got that money from. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, maybe it was like investments from family money. Cause I know obviously once Victoria stops, they don't keep just giving her money. I yeah. don't think. But yeah, that is Princess Sophia Dulip Singh. Yeah. She's princess cool. of Genovia. Genovia. <laughs> uh, she's cool as hell. I really like her. Yeah, she seemed really cool. And I had never heard of her. Yeah, me neither. So thanks, TikTok, for educating me. Yes. And giving me all of the inspo. Thanks to the youth. <laughs> the youths. <laughs> thanks you to the thanks you to the youths. <laughs> thanks, you youths. youths. <laughs> all right let's get the fuck out of here thanks so much for listening (laughs) bye thank you for listening to what the history 
Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHistoryPod. If you'd like to email us, you can do that at WTHistoryPodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear feedback or episode ideas or anything else you have to say. You can support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash WTHistoryPodcast and get exclusive access to even more nerdy stuff. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday when new episodes are released, and we will see you next time.